0: Welcome to Kibi of Liberty.
1: Tom, good to see you.
0: very happy to be back, Matt. Thank you.
1: It's been too long. I think the last time we spoke was at uh, Porkfest a couple years ago, and, it was? and that episode that uh, that episode is famous because one one of the naked guys went walking by behind us during the middle of a otherwise very important conversation.
0: <laughs> did I just not notice that?
1: <laughs> well, we were looking the other way, and and we did not know it was happening. But uh, um, luckily, he's far far enough away that we didn't need to pixelate the. We we try to be a family program here.
0: Well, and you know, Matt, you spend your time assuring people. Oh, don't worry about it. Go to Pork Fest; it's fine. You know, bring the family. Don't worry about it. <sighs> they're
1: they're they're usually over in the far corner. Yeah. Um, but he he had escaped his uh, his his regulated area. Us being libertarians and all. But but anyway. We, I, di- I digress wildly. Um, thank you for doing this. And uh, you have a new book project out that is very near and dear to, to me, Diary of a Psychosis, How Public Health Disgraced. And I can't even see the rest of the title.
0: It's How Public Health Disgraced Itself During COVID Mania.
1: Yes. And uh, you you are someone that I've followed in this conversation very early on. I honestly don't think there were that many of us, um, you probably know exactly who spoke out early. Um, I, I looked this up, the first piece I wrote on this, I published on March 18th, 2020. And, and, and the reason I bring that up is it very much reminds me of of the first post in your book, but but explain the project um, because the, the structure of this I think is fantastic because I, c- I can watch your thinking evolve as you as you apply your your free market libertarian principles to a wildly uncertain situation and, and as facts reveal themselves, you you get more um, pugnacious about it but but early on, we're all trying to figure out what happens.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and I know that even early on, there were some people who, you know, uh, were super sure of themselves and, and got it exactly right from from the very first second. And the very first second, I was unsure of what was happening. I admit that, but I don't think there's any moral flaw in that. I wanted to wait and see what was going on, which I think if we had all taken that attitude, we would have been much saner in our response. Let's wait and see. Because it almost seemed to me like, and I, I, I've i overused this example, Matt, but I live in central Florida and every year there's something called the Central Florida Metal Fest. And it was happening like in the middle of March, 2020. And so building up to it, there's all this excitement. Oh, the Central Florida Metal Fest is coming up. And then there was this news about this virus coming out of China. And as the months and weeks went on, you heard some people t- talking about whether this might affect the, 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 the metal fest. And they were all saying, we're metal people, you know, we're not afraid of any virus, you know, come at us. But then at, when when we got the actual information and it turned out it was, whatever you might say about it, far less deadly than they thought it was when they were boasting they were going to be there, they were absolutely insisting that, of course, all, all responsible people wouldn't want to go. But But like a month earlier... <laughs> Like, like I couldn't understand. it was like they it was in some case, it was almost like people people looked forward or wanted bad news. like i would I would find some encouraging numbers and nobody wanted to hear them. it was it was a really strange thing. But yeah, so there was a little bit of just waiting and seeing early on. But because I write a a daily or at least weekday email newsletter, I don't have the luxury of just sitting back and saying, well, I'll wait till we <laughs> get a little bit more information before I jump in. People expected me to jump in. That's why they subscribed to my email newsletter. So I, I was just honest with them. Well, this is where I am right now. This is how I'm thinking about it. And I'd love to know what perspectives you all have. And the real thing was, as they were engaged in these, uh, I mean, in fact, what, what I remember myself thinking, it never occurred to me they would lock the society down. I just thought, Wow, we may, maybe we're going to be in for a mass death event. This is horrible. I, I don't know. It never occurred to me that they would take this particular tack on it. So then when they did, I wanted to know whether it was doing any good or not, because everyone was so sure that it would. And I understand the logic. It seems like it should have helped. And so what I was trying to do was was to wait and see when some data came out. Do we have anything indicating whether our severe modifications of our behavior have actually done anything. And that, that becomes, after the initial confusion, that kind of becomes the theme of the book, which is, let's actually look at the hard numbers. Let's look at some charts. Let's, let's, let's see what they said would happen. Let's measure it against what actually did happen. Let's see if the things we were ordered to do did any good or if all they did was just destroy society for no reason. That was what I was trying to find out. And I was seeking out, Dissident voices. I wanted to know: Is there anybody who's looking at this situation differently from Anthony Fauci? And if so, where are they getting their data, and how are they drawing their conclusions? And and early on, as you may remember, Matt, it was not easy to find such people, uh, because as as we've said, nobody quite knew what was going on. But as as the months went on, these people began to uh, to assert themselves.
1: Yeah, and and one of the the guy that uh, a friend of both of ours, Jay Bhattacharya, Doctor. Jay Bhattacharya of of Stanford writes the introduction, and he 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 and Scott Atlas, as far as I can tell, were, were two of the very first qualified scientists that that questioned it from from a scientific and public health perspective, um, because they they knew we di- we didn't know at the time, but they knew at the time that that something like a lockdown one hadn't been tried and two had been. Roundly denounced as as potentially catastrophic because of the economic fallout that would happen if you did that. Um, you as an economist, um, one of one of your very first posts, um, I think you're talking to a doctor friend, and and he's he's a little bit anxious about about where you are, maybe more than a little bit anxious. Um, but you you take on the the economic consequences of 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 doing real lockdowns for any amount of time would be catastrophic, particularly for people at the economic margin.
0: Oh, yeah. In fact, yeah, it's a woman, actually. I went to school with her, and she went to a very elite medical school. She's got an excellent reputation in her field, and she's a good, good woman. Like She really did want to try to minimize collateral damage. She wasn't obtusely pretending that there was no collateral damage but she was looking at the situation and saying well we have to do something and what she was unhappy with me about was that she said that my Facebook followers were not very polite because they were all speaking out against what was being done and I was trying to explain to her I think I understand their frustration and I pointed out that all the wealth that exists in the world is about the equivalent of I think it's three years worth of current production so that's a, an interesting statistic. So that means if, if you seriously cut into one of the years of current production, uh, that's a very, very significant thing you're doing to the economy and to the world. But early on, the way it, it got framed, as you recall, uh, Matt, was that they were trying to contrast people who were selfless and thinking about human life against greedy bastards like me who cared only about, quote, the economy, and making sure that the stock market went up or something like that. Like they weren't even really listening because my my point was you're you're looking at the economy in a very juvenile way. The economy, the economy is not just some stock prices. I mean, we are the economy. The economy is this impressive globe spanning lattice work of capital goods and production processes that interlock with each other to yield us the abundance of goods we enjoy. And that if you arbitrarily start taking a crowbar to that, saying, well, we're going to have to shut this down or shut that down, the consequences could be pretty severe for human life. Uh, And indeed, you know, it's interesting to note, um, you know, in this kind of context, the uh, state of the developing world, because there, you know, in in the U.S., the U.S. is a rich country, and we could suffer some um, let's say de- debilitating losses, and still, nevertheless, have a livable standard of living. But there are countries that, uh, in in which the vast majority of the people are living hand to mouth. I mean, they're living at, to the point where every day they earn enough money to feed themselves for that day. And so the consequences of this type of policy were, are, are are obvious. And I had a guy who he he has tragically died uh, super, super young. should not have happened. Uh, but Gret Glyer, who was the founder, uh, creator of the DonorSee app, which is a philanthropy app, and he spent three years living in Malawi, the poorest country in the world. And he, his heart was full of, of love and affection for the people of Malawi. And he told me that one of the stories that we weren't likely to read in the Western press was that when the idea of a lockdown was explained to the people of Malawi. Well, they, they're they capable of doing the math. They realize that if, if they go five, six weeks, or who knows, in an indefinite period of time with no income, they die. I mean, that's that's the end of it. There's no way this can possibly work. And so they revolted and said, there's absolutely no way we're doing this. And so there was no lockdown in Malawi. Now, almost nobody knows that kind of story. And so w- one of the benefits of being a guy who wrote about this every single weekday for three years is that details like that that either we never heard about or are long forgotten, but yet that when taken together really are the story, I remember these things. Like I remember the, the small details, because I live in Florida, of Alachua County, where Jacksonville is. Alachua County said that you can have in your retail establishment, one person per thousand square feet. And so they were asked, the, like the city council or whatever the group is there, uh, how'd you come up with that figure? And they said, "Well, that's a nice round number, so we thought it would be easy math for everybody to do." So, so it's there's it's no science behind this. This was this was to, to make math convenient for people. I mean, that kind of detail we need, you know, is, is easily overlooked and forgotten. But I didn't overlook or forget it. I mean, things like that—you put them together—that is the story that I want my kids to know someday about what happened to us. And if I may say, in a further parenthesis here. I have five daughters, and they pretty well understood what was happening and that Florida, where we live, uh, gave them far more opportunities to live normal children's lives than just about anywhere else on earth. They kind of got that, but they're kids, and I want them to have an innocent childhood. So I don't, you know, there's a lot of misery and rottenness and evil in the world, and I don't grind their noses in the dirt all the time telling them about it. I don't, if they ask me, I'll, I'll give them an answer. But generally, I don't do that because I just want them to have a good childhood. So I wasn't constantly telling them, you can't believe what they're doing in Australia or you can't believe what they're doing in California. I don't want them worrying about that. So even they didn't fully understand the scope of what's going on. So I wanted to produce a record of it that would be useful for all of us who lived through it as well as those who did not live through it. Because by going through it, not quite day by day, but in that kind of format, I hope to reproduce something of the, the texture of life at that time. And, and, and in fact, sometimes I repeat uh, an argument several times or, or a fact several times throughout the book. And, th- and I kept that in because I wanted to also capture that, how exasperated we all felt repeating the same very persuasive arguments and feeling like we were speaking into a void.
1: At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today, just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love Liberty and look cool. Yeah. The, one of the things, and I, I think that's important, and I, I know we say this all the time, and, and I'm sure you hear all the time that, that we need to move on from COVID, but but I, I see this infrastructure and this arrogance and, and, and the, the lesson of the lockdowners is that we just didn't lock down hard enough. So they want to do it again, they're, they're, they're almost salivating at another, at another, the opportunity of, of getting the next pandemic right. So so people do need to understand, and you know, speaking of psychosis, like um, whenever you engage people on social media, if they were pro-lockdown, they, they deny Everything that you document in your book, they say, "Oh, that didn't happen. They didn't do that. They didn't tell people that they would lose their jobs if they didn't get vaccinated. They didn't tell people they couldn't cross state lines. They didn't tell people that they couldn't go to the beach." But of course, they did all that. Yeah.
0: Oh yeah, they yeah yeah they did <laughs> over and over again, and and it, it's you know it it was a bizarre situation really. Um, that's why I call it a psychosis, because I. I've got facts here that need to be reckoned with. And they're not facts that I took from some obscure place or that that they could be cast into doubt. Uh, the, there are two, in fact, the book is filled with with just an absolutely relentless, I mean, relentless, it's like a sledgehammer every page to the official narrative. But if you if you needed just two facts, I think these two facts alone make it extremely hard for people who supported all these restrictions to defend themselves. Now, l- let me start by saying, first of all, since I-, I did live in Florida throughout the entire thing, I personally had an interaction on-, on Twitter that I thought was very revealing. Sometime in 2021, I had somebody say, you know, I've looked at everybody's saying that Florida's doing great, even though it's open. And I've looked at its numbers and Florida seems pretty average. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this guy actually thinks that's a win for him. And so I explained, now, wait a minute. If in March 2020, I ask you if there's an American state that basically doesn't do any of this stuff, um, w- would you describe its likely results as, quote, very average? Or would you describe them as absolutely catastrophic? You know, so the, f- the very fact that you're even calling them average means that you were wrong to begin with there's no way you were going to tell me in march 2020 that in late 2021 florida would be quote very average but beyond that it's not very average uh florida actually and now i lead into the the one of the two facts when we we look at florida versus california of course you have to adjust for age because florida is a notoriously old population i mean it's like a cliche everybody moves to florida to retire and there's a thousand-fold age gradient difference in, uh, in mortality in this. So you, you adjust for that, and you find, uh, well, what do you find? Well, you found that throughout this thing, Florida and California, and California was like locked down to Stan, were about the same in terms of their results. I mean, very, very trivial difference. But when the whole thing was, was all said and done, which one actually did better in terms of all-cause mortalities? That includes... That eliminates the problem of coding a COVID death, uh, and that also eliminates the problem of excluding lockdown-related deaths. You just put them all in there. You look at what were expected trends in deaths and what were the actual ones. Which of the two states did better? Florida did better. Now that should be, if the logic of the public health establishment was correct, that should be metaphysically impossible. But that's that was the result. And I was I spent some time in California. Um, even during the height of it, I was with one of my daughters once, and I thought, well, geez, what can we do under the circumstances? So one thing you could do, Matt, you could go to a drive-in movie because, you know, you're in your car, right? Even the crazies in California have to admit, you're in your car. So we actually went because I thought, you know, in this day and age, nobody goes to a drive-in movie. This would be fun to do with my daughter. So we went to a drive-in movie. But I thought it was interesting that by order of the Department of Public Health, no double features allowed. Now, look, two times zero is still zero. It's just crazy. It was things like that. Or when they reopened Disney at 15% capacity, the the last Disney property anywhere on Earth to reopen, they instituted a rule, heaven knows how you would enforce it, saying no screaming during the rides. I mean, that that was how psychotic the thing was. Come on, Tom. The the science. The science. <laughs> this, well... <laughs> I don't know how you stop yourself, but anyway, then the other fact is, is the case of Sweden. Now, you know, we've all heard a lot about Sweden, and they didn't have the, the standard lockdown, and, and the authorities, the, the, the establishment was screaming at Sweden, if you don't lock down. And it wasn't even like, well, they haven't followed our, our advice, but let's pray for them that they somehow come out of this okay. That was, ne- Matt, you remember that was never the tone that was ever taken toward a recalcitrant place. It was always the the underlying tone of, they're gonna get what's coming to them for not listening to us.
1: They were giddy. They were giddy about the the carnage that was about to befall Sweden.
0: It was like they wanted to see, it was like when Georgia reopened, and I think it was the Washington Post called it uh, a state that was aiming to become the, the country's number one death destination. I mean, they were just dying for it to happen, so to speak. And it, it didn't really. I mean, by, by June, the Imperial College model said there would be 96,000 deaths in Sweden. There were 4,000. So, as usual, off by a factor of 24. But again, when all is said and done, when, when we look back on the experience and we look at the countries of Europe, which one did best in all cause mortality? Doggone it, it's Sweden. Now, again, if, I, if we had asked in March 2020, if there's a country that just flat out defies you people, do you think that it will be the one that has the best record of all cost mortality? You would have been laughed out of the room. But that is the reality. So now, now what kind of answer do they have? Well, they just ignore it. It's just insane, really.
1: Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization Free the People partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org/kol and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now let's get back to it. So I want to take a I want to stop in Sweden for a second because I'm obsessed about this question, and you have you you posit all sorts of of theories about about why this insane experiment happened. Um, is is this a classic uh, bureaucrats with with fatal conceit thinking that they they can science their way out of it and, and we're all lab rats and they're 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 willing to, to treat us that way. You know, Francis Collins just admitted that when when he was doing policy he did not consider the economic consequences um, because because he's focused on the science, and it, it was it just that that arrogance, that naivete, um, and and maybe that's the story. Because the I forget the guy's name in Sweden, but the Fauci of Sweden was was one stubborn S O B that said this is bad science, this will be counterproductive to lockdown, and he just literally refused to comply. But he was kind of a he was very much an outlier in the public health community. Um, but for everybody else, like, what's what's the motive here? Is is it is it power and money, which is is sort of our go to explanation for for government overreach? Um, it I, I honestly don't fully understand why this happened um, because I don't I don't think power and money is enough of an explanation.
0: Yeah, and and I think to go to these kinds of lengths, it, it's. It's so over the top in terms of what a crime that would have been if, it, if any of this was either done deliberately or or purely for material gain. My brain certainly can't compute that level of evil. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but I, I think there's there are people who seem to me to be a little bit too confident in always knowing the answer to what the real motives of the people who run the world are, uh, that any time you, you try to have an argument, they say, well, They've always got some explanation that involves uh, you know you're trying to argue in good faith, but these people are up to no good. There are people who are up to no good. did Did they stage uh, an event like this as a pretext for trying out a massive experiment in social engineering? Um, you'd have to you'd have to give me more evidence of that than I've seen. so so what i've what I try to do in this book is something fairly modest, which is, I think a lot of times, especially our a lot of our people, they want to start the story on chapter 37. Let's talk about the sinister forces behind world events. But the thing is, if you're if you're going to persuade people of something, you're going to have to start with chapter one. Chapter one is it didn't work, okay? Because there are hundreds of millions of people, if not billions, who to this day think the public health people just did the best they could in a difficult situation— and they were up against really stubborn naysayers who refused to listen to science. There are a lot of people who believe that. And we're not going to get anywhere if we don't make headway against that type of argument. And so the first step, in my opinion, is it didn't work. We did an enormous amount of damage to a great many people. I, I mean, it's unthinkable, the collateral damage that was caused by this. And it, and to add insult to injury, it doesn't seem to have accomplished anything. That has, To me, that's where you start.
1: Yeah. And, and, and that's but one of the things that people can learn from your book are some of these basic tools that, that you get from, I would say Austrian economics, but, but even back to Bastiat is where I started, yeah. started my journey just trying to figure out um, what the consequences of a lockdown would be in, in, in real life. And you already described that, that, that intricate web of people with personal skills that ensure, you know, Bastia talked about, you know, how is Paris fed and why does bread magically show up in the morning when when you wake up? And and I, I don't think that that lockdowners at all appreciated the basic economics that allows for that that beautiful process to happen. Yeah. So that that was the first tool that we had, right? Is like we we understand that that economics is a distributed network of personal talents and deciding that some people are essential and some people are not essential is going to break the whole thing.
0: Unfortunately, I think this is one of the results of the fact that in our schools, you know, kids, what do kids learn? They learn how a bill becomes a law, you know, like that's the most important thing, but they don't learn how prices work, but that is at least as important. Because I could imagine a society where there are no bills becoming laws, but I can't really imagine a society without exchange. And how that coordinates all these disparate people and talents and forces and resources is, is truly a wondrous thing. I mean, it's the kind of thing that uh, younger people could find quite appealing because they still, they're not so cynical that the sense of wonder has been sucked out of them. They can actually look at that and say, isn't it amazing? I would have thought something as simple as the proverbial pencil or the Rothbardian ham sandwich uh, was a boring, mundane thing. But when I look at exactly what is involved here and how it all happens with no central direction, there's no pencil czar, there's no ham sandwich czar, this is an amazing thing. No one has that. Instead, they just kind of take for granted, because the system is so good, they almost, they, they think it's automatic and and so so that's a that's a big problem so one of the things i did with this so the, the as, as you said the book is called uh, diary of a psychosis but and, and it's got a lot of charts and graphs in it and it's not, it's not boring because it has charts and graphs the charts and graphs are sledgehammer charts and graphs so you're going to enjoy looking at them but i decided that the whole story can't just be told that way there are of course also personal stories of people with lost livelihoods, with 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 uh, the loss of family members, because uh, either they missed a surgery or or suicide, or or their their relative had to die alone in the hospital, or w- whatever it is, uh, things they worked for destroyed, or families split apart. There are still families where there, some relatives will not talk to other ones. I, I'm still getting emails from readers about that, so I came up with a companion volume that i give away for free when people buy diary of a psychosis and it's called collateral damage and what i did was i took because i was getting these emails from people who subscribed to my newsletter all the time about just tragedies you can't believe and and they were writing to me saying look i know there's nothing you can do to help me but i feel like there's nobody else who even gives a damn you know, because we weren't supposed to tell those stories. If you're complaining about the restrictions, you're probably an evil person who wants to kill your grandmother. I mean, you remember how that was. So these people have not been able to tell these stories. And so I had a whole collection of them. So I, I realized wait a minute, no one's ever collected stories like this into a single volume. So I wrote to these people and said, Would, would you like to be included? I mean, I can do it anonymously if you prefer or with your name but in a supplementary volume that I'm including with my new book, and I'm going to call it Collateral Damage. Not one of them said no, Matt. They just wanted to have these stories heard because they just weren't heard at the time. So I have a website for the book where you can you know, click on buy it from Amazon or whatever. But the website is diaryofcovid.com. And at diaryofcovid.com, once you've bought the book from whatever, whatever bookseller you use, you can go to diaryofcovid.com and get the Collateral Damage book. And as I say, I, I don't think there's been a collection like this. And that is a hu- i mean, that's incredible. After what was done to people, there's not one book collecting their stories. So I thought, well, that's one thing I can do.
1: So, so I bought the book, but I have not um, downloaded the personal stories. And this, this, in many ways, is more interesting to me because I think—and you've already made this case—that um, if we're going to persuade people, I think, I think we need to make it personal— we need to tell these, these stories of real people who paid the real consequences of this ab- abstract um, vision that the lockdowners had. Um, and you know, most of the work we've done has, has told sometimes really devastating stories about, about people whose, whose businesses and families and, and even um, one guy's, his son died because he couldn't get to the hospital for the tests that he ultimately would have needed to survive um, these are the kinds of things that I think um, connect with people who are never going to understand the logic of, of a complex price system. Can you can you tell a story, give us a story that, that you think is pretty compelling?
0: Well, this one, and let me say in, in, at the beginning that you might think, this all sounds really depressing. I don't think I want to read this. And I believe me, I sympathize with that. But at the same time, we read the histories of... Uh, totalitarian regimes, you know, which are just stories of sorrow and horror through and through because we find value in that because we we want to honor the victims because we want to understand the phenomenon better. And so that's why we ought to do it. It's not because it, it gives us pleasure. It's because in a way, this helps them to feel human again, that other people have some kind of fellow feeling with them. Well, the one that really jumps out at me is the story of a, it's a man whose 16-year-old daughter committed suicide because of the lockdowns, because absolutely everything she cherished, I mean, it was, we all had things taken away, but her particular story, it was one thing after another that she'd worked for and looked forward to, everything that she cherished, including friendships, had all been stripped away, stripped away, and the father tells the story in an extremely, sarcastic manner, like pros and cons of the lockdown regime. Uh and so and he lists them. And the cons are all, let's see, my daughter committed suicide. Um it 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 broke down all these social networks. But the pros are she didn't get COVID, you know, I I, which she had a 99.999% chance of not dying from anyway. She didn't get that. Um and and the way he does it, he's he's filled with sorrow but also rage. And I read that, and it, you know I, was, I remember, I, I remember the night that, that he sent me that email, and I was a little tired as I was reading, it and I was just jolted awake as I read him, recalling bit by bit, you could see where it was going, how everything she cherished was being taken away, and there was no prospect of it coming back. I mean, I remember people saying, "We'll probably not have live music anymore. That's just we're not going to have live theater anymore." Uh, really? And so ultimately she couldn't take it anymore and she's gone. And the way he tells that story, I actually wrote back to him and said, are you sure this isn't too personal? Are you sure you want to share this? And he, he absolutely was immovable that he wanted it shared.
1: If you've made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Kibi on Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty Curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. That's, um, that's, that's devastating. There's um, one, one of the documentaries we made is called "All We Have," and it's about um, a, a a guy who's now a friend of mine, uh, Fred, and his family restaurant, the Schnitzel House, in Brooklyn. And oh yes. As you know, New York and Cuomo were were as radical as it got when it came to locking down. And it's his son, who was having grand mal seizures in the middle of all this, and his tests kept getting postponed, and then he died. And so the as devastating as that story is, in some ways, Fred's story is is a hero's journey about how he's trying to recover from from this incalculable loss. And he he posts about it every day on Facebook to this day. But he's he's wanting his restaurant to survive for his son and his parents, and and that in in a weird way is giving him the purpose that that he would otherwise just give up. Um, but again, like um, this this particular film, which I would consider a radical takedown of of lockdowners and and Cuomo in particular, it doesn't say all that stuff, but it doesn't have to because you're just watching what the government is doing to this family. Um, it it won best COVID film at the New York Shorts Festival, and and I have a I have a wild theory that the judges at the New York Shorts Festival are not Austrian economists who understand the unintended consequences of government actions. They, they were probably lockdowners. So they were able to do that. Um, you, you also um, talk about uh, Catherine.
0: Oh, Catherine Hewig Can I tell her story? Yes. yes. So yes. is this another example of somebody I got to meet over the course of this thing who I would never have met otherwise, but I'm very glad to know. Like for example, you and I now know Jay Bhattacharya I can't speak for you, Matt, but I had never heard of him before all this. But now I consider him uh, a real gem of a human being. I mean, honestly, um, when I observe him, even though he has every right to lose his temper and be unhinged and all that, he has such uh, a—he's so temperate in in his remarks, and he— Keeps control of himself in a way I could not. He's, he's a great example to us. So anyway, so Catherine Hewitt is an example of somebody I would never have met otherwise, but who's a very impressive person. So she was following this, this, all this stuff in Ohio. And somehow she got to the Ohio Statehouse and she brought with her a graph. And it was a graph of like COVID health outcomes over time. But on the, so the x-axis depicted time so january 2020 let's say let's say august 20 uh 2020 september 2020 all the way up through let's say sometime in uh, 2021 but but the x-axis was unmarked so she wasn't showing exactly what period of time this was you just know that it was sometime between march 2020 and today and the the you know the number of deaths and whatever's jumping up and down or, or there'll be a big mountain and then it will come down and so she was asking the legislators, now, you all told us that these measures that you implemented were urgently necessary for the sake of public health, urgently necessary, so urgent that they justified measures that were obviously going to decimate people's savings, divide families against each other, ruin businesses, um, disrupt the healthcare care um, industry, and on and on. So these things better have had really, really measurable, obvious results. So let's look at the chart. I want you to find me where, show me where mask mandates went into effect because that should have had a huge effect. You're asking us to have an intervention that covers the individuating characteristic of the human being, the face. And you told us how urgent this was. I bet that must correspond somewhere on this chart to the numbers falling dramatically. Okay, so go ahead, pick out where do you think it is? Or Thanksgiving, you all told us, if we meet for Thanksgiving, there's going to be death everywhere. That two weeks after, you know, wait two weeks, two weeks after Thanksgiving, there should be a huge spike. So go ahead, go ahead, look at the chart, and you pick out where you think Thanksgiving is. And of course, the answer is, none of them know, because it's all random. It's all random. And I, in fact, was so inspired by her takedown of them, that I actually, now it's not it hasn't been updated in a while, but I actually created a little website, covidchartsquiz.com, where uh, I would, just, I just gave this as a quiz. It's, all right, I've got two charts of two neighboring states. So demographically, these people are identical. Or two neighboring counties. They're really identical now. Uh, in fact, here are four counties in Tennessee. One of them reduced uh, restaurant capacity to 25%, which, of course, makes, I mean, restaurants can barely survive on 100%. Uh, Tell me which one of these, uh, here are the charts of their results. Which one do you think did that? And of course, you absolutely cannot tell. And I just keep on doing this and doing over and over and over. But then likewise, I'll show things like the Midwest, Midwestern states around Thanksgiving. Uh, Where's Thanksgiving in here? Just show me. Here's a whole bunch of states together. Where do you think Thanksgiving is? Or which one of these Midwestern states opened up first? Uh, it must be the one where the, the, the numbers are going through the roof. Well, of course, none of the numbers are going through the roof, so that's wrong. So I did that because I was a little bit academically competitive when I was in school. I didn't like failing tests, but you fail this test every single time. And 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 I did that to, to make a point that it, it doesn't— And the thing is, though, Matt, sometimes it seems like the measures— weren't even actually intended to make to have an effect and here's what i mean by that the vaccine mandates that they had uh, for example uh, take for example california los angeles county had a vaccine mandate so you couldn't go into a restaurant or all these public places unless you had a vaccine card but neighboring orange county did not do that so you look at the results they're identical you can they are identical you cannot tell the difference between them well, I have found, it's, it's true, I haven't found an American official who openly admitted this. But in the book, I found two Canadian officials who openly said, look, we're not saying that um, we're going to protect people's health by doing this and, and, and keeping people out of restaurants. Um, what we're What we're trying to do here is modify people's behavior, is let them know that if you're going to be stubborn about this and not get the shot, then I'm sorry, you can't go to concerts, you can't uh, see your kid play sports. you can't uh, go to a restaurant. We're doing it for that reason. We're doing it for behavior modification. We're not doing it for health. and i I rather think that is the the reasoning behind a lot of uh, the the people who advocated things like
1: that yeah, and that and that's what I was getting at earlier i I, I, I don't think grand conspiracy theories are are helpful, but, um... Looking at, um, for instance, the demonization of Jay Bhattacharya, the other signers of the Great Barrington Declaration, um, the way he, his own university went after him, and his wife, and 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 literally, the machine. What we can define what the machine is, but they tried to destroy dissent, because they were were wanting to condition people, and and I remember early on talking to Matt Ridley, who wrote uh, with Elena Chen. you you've, you've Talk to him as well, um, and you know he's he's very cautious about about saying you know we don't know that there's a lab leak, but there's there's reasons to believe that maybe this virus was manipulated in a lab. And what I said at the time, which I'm still obsessed with, well, um, the cover up, the demonization of of dissenting voices, the the censorship by by defense interests within the U.S. government. The cover-up itso- itself tells me that something really bad happened, and they don't want you to know about it. And you know, my working theory is that they 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 were probably doing this as some uh, poorly conceived of, wildly dangerous, mad science experiment that was that they believed would actually protect society from from bioterrorism. Um, I I think those things are probably true, but in the process, they unleashed. Um, this hellish virus, and then to cover it up, they, they created all of this uh, uh, lockdowns to, to kind of distract us from what they had done. That's my working theory. I don't know that that's true, but you know, where there's smoke, there's fire, and I, I can't say that, that sticking with lockdowns over three years even made any political sense. Like, even if you're a cynical political operator, um, after a while, you're losing your own people on this stuff.
0: Right, right. Yeah, the, the, no doubt about that. Poor poor David uh, Leonhardt from the, uh, or I don't know how he pronounced his name, from the New York Times. It was his job in late 2021, gradually to let his Blue State readers know that really the things we did, did don't seem to have accomplished anything. I mean, it was October 2021 that he started writing, you know, I've looked at the numbers in it just looks like none of this mattered, <laughs> you know, so, but it, gosh, it took them a long time finally to, to say that. Can, can I j- say one other thing about, you were asking me about examples of people who suffered, and I can't believe I left out, I mean, I only gave one, but there's there's another one I, I just want you to know about, because this is somebody, if you don't know him, I'd like to introduce him to you, okay. and that is Clifton Duncan. Does that name ring a bell?
1: Yes, yes, He's okay. he's been on the show, but uh, his his story is worth documenting in a more substantial way.
0: Yes, so he's, he's one of the stories in Collateral Damage. Um, but I, I, I also want to tell you what he's up to now because it's, it's really exciting. So Clifton Duncan was a Broadway actor with a lot of television experience. I'm a Broadway fan. Turns out I've actually seen Clifton Duncan on stage twice, um, six years ago. But I had, I had no idea our paths would cross one day. And I loved him. He was fantastic. And if you hear him sing, I saw him in a standard play. I didn't see him in a musical. His voice is out of this world. And he was getting, he went to a top program, extremely selective. He was getting incredible reviews. His career was definitely on the ascent. And then this all happened. He declined the shot. He said, I I neither want nor need this shot, and I'm not going to be bullied into taking it. And just like that, his management abandoned him. He was just left hanging out to dry. And now he is, he's gone in reverse. Most actors wait tables while they wait for their big break. Clifton Duncan is now back to waiting tables because he just won't do it. And he doesn't even want to be part of anything with these people anymore. But this was what he was, this was, what he loved. This was his life. This was what he trained for. This is what he wanted to live for. And he described himself in the middle of last year as being just a shell of a man after what was done to him. But there is some good news since the publication of, of these books. And that is, that is this. And I expect him to start announcing it soon. But he is interested in working on a, a one-man show about the life and ideas of Thomas Sowell and oh, wow. I feel like our people will amplify that every way they can and help him along in that because I told him you should start a if not go fund me then a give send go or whatever to support you while you do the research for this thing and you give out perks like anybody uh I think there would, I think everybody would want to support you on this because of, we've seen what you what you went through unjustly, and also we see the merits of a project like that.
1: I will do everything I can to to promote that and help that get that off the ground. And and I, you know, uh, incidentally, I you know I started following him on Twitter, and this is old Twitter when they were censoring a lot of us. But there was there was this Team Reality thing that unfortunately I, I got um, involved with. Perhaps too late because I I could have used a little moral support. I was feeling pretty lonely, um, speaking up against this stuff as well. But um, and I'm sure you've seen this or maybe you were there. But he he gave this powerful speech at a Mises Institute oh, event. It was so great, yeah, amazing. And I and this 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 should be maybe one of the white pills that we that we wrap up this conversation with. I have met so many new friends who didn't know about Austrian economics, didn't know about libertarian philosophy, and they were alone thinking that something was fundamentally wrong in 2020, and they started researching. And I, I have, a, I have a, a friend who's um, an Israeli basketball player, professional basketball player, and he found Rothbard, and eventually um, um, Terry, my wife, and I invited him to a Mont Pelerin meeting because he was trying to figure out why he was so viscerally opposed to lockdowns. And he started, he went down the rabbit hole, started doing research, and is now um, a very well-schooled Austrian economist who also happens to be a successful back basketball player. And I meet so many people like that, that this, um, it, there's, I wish there was a different type of opportunity, but people seeing how irrational and stupid and unhumane and devastating these policies were they're searching for answers, and I think I think we have we have a portfolio of of ideas and values that, that I think can be quite attractive, and fill in a lot of blanks.
0: I think so too, and I, I think now more people than ever are willing to consider uh, what what the dissident voices have to say, uh, and 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 that's all to the good, and and it's it's such an interesting thing the the difference between how the elites think and how the rest of us think. Like they, there was some documentary that came out about uh, Anthony Fauci and the reviews from the official, you know, corners of official opinion uh, were all uniformly positive. And then from the general public, they were negative. And so it's it's fascinating that we live in that, that kind of a society. Like, frankly, I would like to see a documentary about the life of Jay Bhattacharya. I bet that'd be very interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, talk about... Uh diaryofcovid.com and, and all of the, the things, the tools that you can give people um, when they buy your book.
0: So diaryofcovid.com is the, the website. As I say, you don't have to order it through there. It just links to different booksellers there. But it's got all the endorsements. I mean, I, I'm really happy. I got an endorsement from, um, I, I got the Ford from Jay Bhattacharya. I got an endorsement from the Surgeon General of Florida, Joseph Latipo who's a great guy. Matt Ridley gave it a nice endorsement. Um, so I, I'm i really happy with this. That's all there. It also has the best two-minute book video you've ever seen. Because in that video, I've got, I specifically said, I, we have to have these particular clips. I've got Andy Slavitt and Anthony Fauci, the two times they were ever asked a really hostile question and how they just whiffed. They just, I don't know, like why isn't California doing better than it is? I, they You think but they must have some answer. And they really don't. So so that's so this is some good fun meat on that uh, site. But but when you pick up Diary of a Psychosis, enter your info, we'll send you the the free volume, which is collateral damage, the stories of what people endured. So the site is, as you said, diaryofcovid.com.
1: And uh your your regular show, where do people find that?
0: Tomwoods.com. The the Tom Woods show has released going on 2,450 episodes. I don't know what I'm trying to prove here, Matt, but I'm still doing
1: it. You can't stop, right? I... Can't, I know. What would I do, play golf? You're, I think the last episode I listened to this morning was on scientism, which is a subject near and dear to my heart, sort of the religiosity of of the science. And I think, I think there's all sorts of content on there for people that are interested in this subject. We got to win this fight. And... Uh, I think your contribution is now well documented in this book, and I hope everybody buys it. I've, I, I love this. It's, it's very different than other books you're going to read on COVID.
0: Thank you very much, Matt. I appreciate the things you do as well, and uh, I'm, I'm very happy to have a chance to talk to you
1: again. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. <laughs> And if you want to know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.